Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello. Hi. As you can hear, uh, Ed isn't here. Ed has had to drop out at the last minute this week. So who else to replace him? Who else could it have been but Sarah Barron, comedian, first choice out of all the people living in this house with me? Yes, yes, yes. How far down the list was I? Was I option like four? Three. Oh, really? Three. So we asked Melissa Ben. Oh, my God. Who's just you always are, I great. genuinely didn't re- realize the extent to which you were scraping the bottom of the barrel with me now that I understand that Melissa Ben was in And then, then Melissa wasn't around. So you're thinking, well, Melissa is this weighty person who yeah. does all this great work in, in, in uh, uh, education and she's steeped in this world of politics. So, so then after Melissa, we asked another comedian, Josie Long. Oh, my God. Who also wasn't available. Josie, so who also does a lot of good, important work. I volunteered once in 1989. Oh, yeah. What did you do? I went bowling with some students who were differently abled. Okay. So your bit of doing good for, for the world and wider society was going bowling once in 1989. Correct. Well, you, you know, you, you've subsequently gone on to give the gift of laughter to many hundreds of people. So, <laughs> so, so here we are. Um, so, so thank you for standing in and being uh, Deputy Ed this week and it's timely and we'll we'll tell you why it's timely in just a second but I I sense a little nervousness from you in in filling Ed's shoes yeah he has big shoes literally he does have big feet doesn't he yeah enorme they are lay feet enorme well to 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 fill Ed's shoes the the metaphorical ones at least all you have to do in this bit is go on about the temperature of the water that you've been swimming oh in. Oh, my God. I... Or go on about how close to your personal best you've got when you've been running this week. I'm so over cold water swimming. I'm completely uninterested. You can tell them that I said that. And one of the things that's really made me go, and I get like I get it. There are these benefits. Fine. 
but we've been without heat. We, we have a, a boiler issue in our home. This has led to there being no hot water. So I did the routine where I had to like hang my head over our bathtub and use a detachable shower head to wash my hair. The water was very cold and it just confirmed this thing that like people who are into cold water splaying, your friend Eddie included, I feel that these people are like a little bit into pain. Maybe, maybe he's become very obsessed with pushing his body to the physical limits. But I think you there have have really uh, filled the hole left by Ed by talking about an experience you had with some cold water this oh, week. Oh, I did. It's, I was it's, just it's for me, it was negative. About at the moment, if people are wondering um, why we don't get a new boiler. I am trying to hold out until the government bring in subsidies for green boilers. Oh, interesting. How many years do you think that's going to be? I, I, I think we're going to see some movement on that in the next couple of years. Nice. Uh, based on the episode we did a couple of weeks ago. Now, I, I mentioned that it's kind of timely that you are being Ed this week because we have something that we're doing together that I thought it would be good to tell people about. Uh, we have a new podcast, which is out today. And do you, want to, do you want to tell the reasons to be cheerful, listeners, what it is? Shall I say the title? Yes. Is it allowed? Yes. We're doing a podcast called Firecrotch and Normcore, a succession podcast. We basically realised, having watched Succession... <sighs> Sarah, you can't just blow your nose on reasons to be cheerful. I went away from the mic. Was that but still audible? It's still audible, yeah. You know, sometimes when we're doing the Zoom, it's not so much when we're in person, but as we've been doing Zoom these last 18 months or so, Ed is, 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 is like constantly picking at his teeth. That's fascinating. Do you not feel that as a politician that you'd think that the... The opposite would be true. That yeah, if anything, he was so he'd be so self conscious. Yeah, but he's not doing it on news night, is he? But he, I notice him all the time oh, on a Zoom. So it's, it's almost me. like you're not worth it to him. <laughs> like acting like a functional human isn't worth. Does that make you feel like there's real intimacy? Between you, yes, and like he I'll, just I'll, doesn't yeah, care about I'll, I'll you. I'll frame it that way for my own uh, for my own self esteem. So we're doing this podcast. It's about succession. We are obsessed with succession, and we talk about it so much. Anyway, we're so excited about the new series. We thought, well, why don't we have those conversations in front of the microphone and put it out as a podcast? And that that gives other people a place to put their obsession. Yes, what I feel happens is that when I'm watching TV, like sort of in real time as it's airing that I'm obsessed with and that you can't binge. So you can only do one episode and then you have to wait a week. Is that having watched the episode of the TV show, I'm like, <gasps> it ends and I feel excited but empty and I, I don't know what to do with all my thoughts and my feelings, Jeff. So we have we are creating a podcast where if you are a succession fan, you can bring all those obsessions, all those preoccupations, all those questions to us at Firecrotch and Normcore. And if you like succession, please do subscribe to it and uh, and rate and review it. But as Ed always says, only if you're going to give it a five-star rating and a glowing review. Shall we talk about what we're talking about this week? Yes. We are talking about age-friendly communities. These are places where people of all ages can live healthy and fulfilling lives. Like many countries, the UK has an ageing population. By the 2040s, it's projected that a quarter of the population are going to be over the age of 65. Now, for more than a decade, the World Health Organization has been promoting the idea of age-friendly communities as a response to this. And this is thinking about how our towns villages and cities can be designed so that things like transport, housing and social activities serve older people's needs too. We are going to be talking to Natalie Turner, who is from the Centre for Ageing Better. 
about the different elements that should be considered in an age-friendly community and how places around the UK are putting these ideas into practice. Then we will hear from Paul McGarry from the Greater Manchester Ageing Hub about how Greater Manchester has been leading the world on this agenda and what it's meant for older people in the city. And finally, we are going to be talking to Anna Berit Rolfos from the Centre for an Age-Friendly Norway about how some of these ideas are being implemented in Oslo and across Norway more widely. What's your reason to be cheerful? My reason to be cheerful is this. I'm a big fan of the author Jonathan Franzen. Jonathan Franzen has a new book recently out, and I decided that in preparation for that, I am rereading one of my favorite Jonathan Franzen books, which is, of course, unoriginally The Corrections. My reason to be cheerful is that sometimes when I reread books that I loved as a late teen or early 20-something, I find now that as a lady of 42, playing age 35. (laughs) I like I don't have the brain for it anymore. There's something about reading books that I used to love that makes me feel like I'm getting dumber. But on this occasion, Jeff, I've been rereading the corrections. And if anything, I'm only loving it more. The process of that has made me feel that my brain is not deteriorating in the way I always feel that it is because of my relationship to my iPhone. And that is my reason to be cheerful. My reason to be cheerful is Ed sent me a link. And it's it's interesting that this caught his eye. Superman comes out as DC Comics usher in a new Man of Steel. The new Superman, Jonathan Kent, who is the son of Clark Kent and Lois Lane, will soon begin a romantic relationship with a male friend. That same-sex relationship is just one of the ways that Jonathan Kent, who goes by John, is uh, is proving to be a different Superman than his famous father. Uh, Since the new series, he's combated wildfires caused by climate change, thwarted a high school shooting and protested the deportation of refugees in Metropolis. Interesting. It is. So I I, um, like this, not just because it shows how society is progressing, but also I'm really delighted to know that Clark Kent and Lois Lane did in fact get together and they were able to, to... to have a kid together because if you remember was there a question about them well, no it wasn't it wasn't you know anything to do with fertility i don't think that was ever addressed in the superman films but, but whether or not they did the deed well, was I, left I, ambiguous I, I, I just always thought it was a little bit odd that he was using his x-ray vision to see inside her lungs and if that had come out then maybe she'd have thought it was a bit creepy in the relationship i think in real life might have faltered but it's good to know that they got past that and there is a new progressive superman first of all with what with what regularity does ed send you a link that he wants you to look at it really varies wildly at the moment it's rare it's maybe one a week uh-huh. if there's less going on uh, they are very frequent at all times of day and night oh it's you have such a special friendship <laughs> when he sends you stuff does he sign off with a kiss only signs off with a kiss if he wants something that he knows is an ask. Oh my God. <laughs> He's so high status, isn't he? Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. We're going to start by talking about why it's important that our communities are age friendly, what that actually means, about what we're perhaps currently not very good at, but lots of ideas and, uh, and examples 
of how to do it better with Natalie Turner, who is head of localities at the Centre for Aging Better. Natalie, hello. Hi, hello. And I just want to salute you because you're taking time out of a holiday to talk to us, which is above and beyond. Could you maybe start by giving us a snapshot of the UK population and uh, how that is going to be changing in the future? Well, we're all living longer, really, which is um, fantastic news. And um, I suppose it's the result of years of fantastic advances in public health and health. And we're not dying of diseases at younger ages. So it's a real success of um, humanity. But we're not really, I hope people recognise it, are prepared for it, are thinking about it. I think um, we've all got a role to play both in thinking about ourselves living older, but also society generally getting used to and adjusting for that change, because it is a change. It's a real opportunity to think about, you know, how we make the most of this incredible bonus of um, extra 30 years that we had from 100 years ago. Because I, I guess there was a tendency in the past to think of the last portion of life as, I mean, stereotypically one foot in the grave. And it's it's not just that it's it's more years, but the health that we're, we're in in those years is very different to what it would have been, I don't know, 40, 50, 60 years ago. But but the thinking on it hasn't quite caught up the way we think about what old age is. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. But I think if you think about it, most of us, in terms of our personal examples of older people, our grandparents, maybe when we were younger or people around us, you know, that in itself was 50, 60 years ago. So that changed change our perception hasn't caught up with it my mum is constantly buying her last car and like because I know I work where I am I'm like mum that that car is not going to last you 30 years you know <laughs> it's this well I'm just gonna I've only got five your years it's like actually you know we know that you're more likely to live 20 or 30 years after retirement now and let's talk a little bit about the work you do at the Centre for Aging Better so Tell us a bit about that and who you work with. So at the Centre for Aging Better itself is a, um, we're a non-profit, we're a, a um, charitable foundation and we're endowed um, through the National Lottery Community Fund. And ultimately our vision or our goal is for a society where everyone enjoys their later life. And very early on in our um, founding really, and we were founded in 2015, we um, understood that places have a big, big impact on how people age and um actually where people live, where we work, where we play, um, where we kind of do the things that we value and where we are growing older can make a huge difference and can either throw up barriers or it can also make it easier for us to age well. And this is where we come on to this idea of age-friendly communities which you you support and you have a, a network, I think, of 40 around the country. And maybe a good way to understand this idea is to start by thinking about the ways in which communities aren't uh age friendly that are age unfriendly um before we get on to the to the big idea yeah yeah sure 52 places actually but actually we want every place in the country to become age friendly so how are they not friendly i mean i'm on holiday at the moment in greece and i kind of thinking about it talk about a busman's holiday thinking about all the you know where you can't walk where you can't get to places Mm -hmm. where you can maybe um be living in a house that you moved into when you were in your 50s and then looking around it and going, actually, um, this is not a place that I can stay past 70 because I can't get up and down those stairs and I can't widen those doorways. I can't get from my front door to the nearest town if I can no longer drive. So there are lots of ways that um, our communities can kind of 
set up a whole lot of barriers to us but also then you know um the kind of attitudes and the opportunities that you've got out there that, that they suit you or you feel like you're included in your community and you've identified these uh, eight, eight domains you call them of age friendly i wonder if we, we were to go through them and you could just talk a, a little bit about them so the first one i guess is outdoor spaces outdoor spaces i think of green spaces for example parks as, as, as being inherently age friendly is is that always the case um, no, it's really interesting you say that. Yes, some parks are um, age friendly, but actually some parks can feel very, um, how, you know, how you get to the park, how you get in, how you navigate around, whether you can move along easily along the pavements to get in if it's well signposted. Or does that park feel like somewhere you've got nowhere you can sit down? I mean, that's a really simple one. Benches are kind of the difference between someone being able to walk into the park and get to the other side. Or do I have to sit there and have a look at something and see what's going on? So you were just talking about the kind of domains. You wanted to get a bit of an oversight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so transportation, this isn't just thinking about um, frequency is it? It's, it can also be thinking about how uh, a community is laid out. T- tell us a bit more about why that is so important. When it comes to the kind of transport and, um, and buses, you need to think about, are they there at all? Where do they go to? And whether you can get on them and off them, whether you know they're coming, that sort of thing. But then also when you get on the bus, it's like, do, does the bus driver know not to pull off the second you um, sit down and Isle of Wight has done some really interesting work with training bus drivers getting them to sort of put on age suits wow literally walk in the footsteps of um, uh, what it's like to use the facilities um, to use their bus if if you know maybe they can't see so well or you're finding it a bit harder to move what does the age suit impair what does it take away it's something that kind of makes your it harder for you to see harder for you to slightly hear things a little bit more physically impedes the joints and so that just right. makes it a little bit harder to move and to see and to hear now it's controversial yeah. right because actually not every not everyone you don't hit 65 and suddenly you're wearing the physical equivalent of a, an age suit jeff's already wearing his and he's only 48 <laughs> exactly and um, actually it's about anybody then you start to think about the different people with different yeah. kinds of abilities getting on your bus at any age and i think that the, the um i'm trying to remember the name of the bus company now but they made it part of their um ongoing professional training as a unit they've taken that on and they did things like because uh, one of the reasons that buses often take off like a rocket is because they have a timetable to keep to. So it allowed a little bit more flexibility. They allowed a little bit more flexibility in the timetable for bus drivers to stop, to slow down, to allow that so that they they had their own freedom to kind of make the changes that might support some of their older customers. I wanted to ask you specifically about housing, because sometimes you can think about housing for an older population in terms of uh, sheltered accommodation or or special accommodation. But people, by and large, want to stay in the homes that they've lived in as as long as they can. And and thinking about that uh, can be a big part of this. Absolutely. So the vast majority of older people live in and will continue to live in the um, mainstream housing 
and will we'll, we'll quite happily do so for all their lives. So we need to th- think about existing homes and how these can be maintained, improved, adapted and made accessible for us as we grow older. We have some of the oldest housing stock in Europe and many of those older homes are in rural areas and are very, very difficult to adapt, to convert, to heat So if we're thinking about meeting our carbon zero obligations, we have got to be thinking about those homes. And it's not just a carbon zero agenda. Actually, these are the homes that we are going to live in, that we need to be warm in, that we need to be cool in, and that need to stay up to date and safe and and good for us as we grow older. Um, My final question for you is, so bit of a fantasy world here. You are... Your new job description, you're appointed Minister for Aging. It's the in, new, in the Jeffocracy. In the Jeffocracy, which is this term here that because I'm married to him, I sort of refuse to put that word in my mouth. But anyway, what would you do, the single thing you would do to promote age-friendly communities across the country? It's got to start at the top and the bottom. But for me, it would be saying, I want every place in the country to understand its older population today. And to really to start to disaggregate everything by age and to go, what is the impact this? What are the choices we are making right now? And how will that impact on people's later lives? Because the minute you get people to focus on this, it's not it's not a magic bullet. There's a million different things. Getting people to think about this in everything they do. That's when the magic happens. Well, that was uh, that was fantastic. Thank you so much for taking time out of your holiday. I can't believe we so dragged grateful. you away from the sunshine to uh, to talk to us, Natalie Turner from the Centre for Aging Better. Go Thank eat you so some much. Satsiki. Thank you for your time, Natalie. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Bye. So we'll hear an example of of some of how the ideas are working in practice. We are going to speak to Paul McGarry, who is the head of the Greater Manchester Aging Hub. So, Paul, just to get us started here, can you talk us through some of Greater Manchester's plan for creating an age-friendly city region? Well, you know, uh, lots of the age-friendly city programs, I guess our vision is pretty closely aligned to the WHO model, you know, the eight domains of being age-friendly and so on. Uh, At the same time, uh, the age-friendly city movement over the last 15 years, I guess, has created lots of different versions of that. And I guess our version of it is based on the experiences of working in low-income urban communities, by and large. So our focus has always been on inequalities. We're part of a family, but we've got our own uh, kind of uh, features and they're very much on social justice, social inclusion, citizen action and so on. And can I ask, if I'm sort of not mistaken, I feel like some of the reading I've done has shown that Greater Manchester has been one of the leaders on this sort of globally. And I was wondering if you could talk us through a little bit about the city's history on how it wound up in that position? So uh, I guess actually what's quite useful is to start around 2006, 2005, when WHO launched this programme as a kind of research programme, 30-odd cities, I think, uh, working with uh, groups of older people, um, which led to the eight demands of the age-friendly city. Um, I was then at Manchester City Council and have been really since the mid-90s working on ageing strategy and policy. We saw this concept of the age-friendly city. Um, We made contact 
contact with the WHO in London. Uh, we said we wanted to get involved. Uh, and uh, it kind of went from there. Can I ask you as well, like, what has that meant sort of specifically in practice for the older people of Greater Manchester? Like, what specifically, what are some of the ideas that you've adopted and then the day-by-day the, the day impact that you see having for that portion of the community? Well, I, I, I guess, that you know, I, I started this work at a GM level, I suppose, in about 2015. So I've been in Manchester from about ninety mid nineties doing this work, I'll give you a list of things that we've done, and then a few thoughts. So we uh, we've been doing work around employment and older workers. Okay, we have a big gap in the number nationally. I think it's a million people over fifty want to work but aren't in work. Uh, we've done. Uh, we have a program called Pride in Aging, which is looking at the LGBT elements of, of aging populations. Um, we've run a campaign in the first six months of this year around pension credit. Um, uh, I don't know, seventy-five million pounds goes unclaimed just in Greater Manchester every year in pension credit. Seventy-five million pounds, but also it's a passport benefit to things like free TV licenses for over seventy-fives free specs, um, attendance allowance and other uh, benefits as well. So we've, I think we've managed to raise about £2 million in the first six months in GM. And there's other things as well. So we, we launched a housing framework for ageing populations about two or three weeks ago. Um, we've got a physical activity programme funded by Sport England and GM Moving. We've had a programme around culture and creativity for about the last 15 years in Manchester and now Greater Manchester. So one of the really important sectors around giving people good quality of later life is a creative and cultural sector, particularly for people on low incomes. So we have everything from kind of um, film clubs in community centres through to a programme called Culture Champions, which is where older people become uh, creative themselves, um, put on local events. We have a programme for older artists called Boulder, I think it is. Um, and we set up a national agency around creative and culture. And are older people usually excluded from, or maybe talk to us about the ways in which uh, older people are often excluded from those things? It relates to things like transport and culture, uh, particularly for low-income communities. The cultural institutions have tended to focus on young people. Uh, but we've had a programme, as I said, for a long time, which is focused on older people from low-income communities in particular, who've often thought that the kind of cultural and creative assets that a city region has aren't for them. But we've got all the big cultural institutions involved in that, you know? Um, so it's, uh, it's, one of the be- it's one of my favourite things because you get to sit in rooms with people who are really smart <laughs> and really creative rather than most of the bureaucratic meetings I spend time in. So let me tell you about a couple of other things. We have a Greater Manchester Older People's Network so that was funded through our Ambition for Aging programme, which is a big lottery programme, 10, 11 million pounds invested in 28 neighbourhoods across Greater Manchester over the last six or seven years. So it's about having a kind of authentic, representative voice in policy making in Greater Manchester. And then we, we do a lot of international work. So we, we, we led a programme, I think it finished last year, EU-funded working with, um, I think, seven or eight other European cities, so uh, Oslo, Barcelona, Amsterdam, and so on. And there's a lot you can learn through working with uh, cities and city regions, and that's been an important part of our 
Workling. So it's kind of the full package, really, in terms of our work. I was going to ask you as well, like sort of slightly off topic. I was just wondering, like my impression is that you were sort of to use this phrase, like you were sort of into all this stuff before it was cool. And I was, it seems like a calling. And I was wondering sort of how you got, how you got into it. Why is it important to you, or is it important to you personally and sort of how you wound up on this path? Well, I guess, you know, uh, when you work for a city like the city of Manchester, you know, it, it tends to attract people with certain values around equality mm. and inclusion and so on. How you end up specifically on this agenda, I'm not sure. I think I was just in the office when somebody asked that we needed somebody to write a report on older people. And I thought, hang on a minute, this is really interesting mm. uh, because this is about all of us. The stuff that you came across, did it feel in- invisible? Were you surprised by what you found? You know, it's constantly surprising, actually. I mean, you know, I I, I joke that I've been given the same presentation for 20 years. Nothing Uh, changes. You know, you're making the same arguments. But what, Paul, you know, why do we need to focus on on older people? You know, what what specifically? You know, it's a kind of weird thing. I think, uh, and I, you know, I sit around with my colleagues who are kind of part of our gang, I suppose, and with colleagues internationally and nationally, you know, Natalie, Anna Barrett and all these colleagues that you're speaking to, and we have that conversation. So so where does it go next for Greater Manchester? I mean, you you have a lot of plates spinning that you've told us about. Where, yeah. where would you like to see it go? GM is just about to publish a, a, a new Greater Manchester strategy. So, you know, the mayor is, uh, is leading that. Um, one of the mayoral priorities. I mean, there's a lot about older people and ageing in the mayor's manifesto. You know, that's a good thing. There was in his... First manifesto in 2017, uh, and there was this year's manifesto. That's really important, that political leadership and the story we have around ageing. There's a few things, I guess, in the next phase. Digital inclusion. So the mayor has made this one of his priorities uh, around people over 75, that as more services move onto a digital platform, then there has to be some kind of payback for people who can't access those services. Mm-hmm. So there's a big deal there, I think, around digital. We're going to be pushing ahead with the kind of financial inclusion agenda. We had uh, a, a report last year, I think it was, on from our Inequalities Commission with Kate Pickett sharing who you'll know. Um, and there's focus there on, I think, Pathfinders, Pathfinder work in low-income communities and ageing will be part of that. And... Um- you know, you you mentioned before the international cities that you've uh, you, you've been working with on this agenda. Um, where would you like to see Manchester in context of uh, of, of global cities? Is is there a city that you would aspire to? Is there something that you'd want to be a leader on? I think there are the structural elements that create good places to grow old so the scandinavians have it they have a good they have a social state arguably the dutch and and the germans have it you know and and other places don't have that kind of social state but i think nationally and internationally there's a discussion needed in the age-friendly movement about the impact that we've had to date the impact that we had during covid but what are the prospects there's a an important article written a few years ago in an American author whose name I forget, which was, it was called Go Big or Go Home. And I think that's true about the ageing agenda. You know, unless we're able to redesign our transport systems, unless we're able to have a social care system that works for older people, unless we're going to have serious plans around housing, 
unless we're going to uh, get more older people into work, then it feels very much like a, a bit of a marginal endeavour that we're involved in. And I think that's the challenge for us in, in the age-friendly movement. And I always uh, kind of said that you needed your political leaders uh, to talk about uh, ageing alongside the other assets that a city had, whether it's music or the universities or whatever it is. You know, that being having expertise in this agenda is something to, you know, to brag about. You uh, you mentioned Andy Burnham before in his, his manifesto. You've been uh, working in local government in Manchester for, for a long time. What difference has having a city mayor, an elected city mayor, made to being able to push this agenda forward? I think, you know, Man- Manchester and Greater Manchester is a good, you know, it's a good brand. Everybody, you, you know, it doesn't matter where you travel in the world. And I've done a lot of that over the years on this agenda people know about Manchester, you know. And you're usually asked whether you, which, you know, Man United or, or Man City, you know, the number of taxi drivers that have asked me that. And I say Blackburn Rovers, you know, and they're like, what? Uh, but, you know, Manchester has a strong brand, you know. Everybody knows about Manchester. And then you bring, uh, you bring Andy Burnham into the equation and, you know, it's kind of gone up. And, and degrees, where N is a very large number, partly because of his drive uh, and expertise and experience, partly because people want to work with Andy Burnham, and, and they should, because he gets things done and the city region gets things done. So if you're a, an investor or a funder from anywhere, really, and you want to get stuff done at scale, you know, 2.8 million people, 10 local authorities, social care, healthcare devolution, work and skills devolution you're going to be thinking about Greater Manchester to do it. So, you know, if you want to be doing work in local government, I think GM's a pretty good place to be. Hard work, but, you know, rewarding. Thank you so much. I mean, it's so incredible what you're doing in Manchester and it sounds like, you know, there's plenty plenty more to come and worth keeping an eye on there. But for now, Paul McGarry, head of the Greater Manchester Ageing Hub, thank you very much. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 
Finally, we always enjoy a trip to the Nordic regions on the podcast, and uh, and this week it's to Norway where we are going to speak to project manager at the Centre for an Age-Friendly Norway, Anna Berit Rofoss. How how was that, Anna Berit? That was pretty good, actually. It was like a six out of ten, five out of ten. I'll give you six, yeah. Okay, sounds about right. <laughs> and um, and it's funny, I was just saying that so often on this podcast we look to the nordic countries for inspiration um but you you got some of your inspiration from paul mcgarry in manchester who we were just talking to oh absolutely he's sort of my mentor uh and inspiration for sure and manchester has been doing so many great things that i've really copied just taken the good ideas and initiatives and copied them in oslo so yeah no Really great inspiration. And also, Natalie, Centre for Aging Better. Now that I'm running a network of age-friendly communities, I'm really learning a lot. Oh, that's great. Great to know that the ideas are going both ways for once, rather than just coming from from you to us. Um, Do you want to give us a little bit of a picture of the situation in Norway? So we've heard that here in the UK, uh, the the trend is towards a a more ageing population. Um, What's the picture in Norway? and, And how is this issue of how we think about uh, our communities for older people? Has it been thought of traditionally? Well, so we have an ageing population like most the rest of the world, particularly the rural areas are hit hard. Um, It really hits us hard sort of from next year onwards and really hard in 2040. But already in 2030, we are more older people than younger as a national average. And and my impression is that the Nordic countries and I don't you know I know you don't like to be bundled in as one because there are big differences between the the, the Nordic countries but uh have, have historically been quite good on provision for older people um in what ways is or isn't that true oh I think it's true um but it's very traditional and still is and with that I mean we do care homes and facilitated care at home, whereas we want to move into more independence and delivering services in a different way. But nursing homes and care homes is still very much a tradition in Norway. That, of course, has to do with the fact that we have 85 86% of women working, and that's been a tradition for a very long time. And so we needed other people or institutions to look after older people. So that tradition with nursing homes and and care homes is still very strong. Um, But we're moving away from it and we're moving away from, you know, trying to then facilitate for people to live at home much longer, um, to be more independent. If they do need any services, can they be delivered at home? Can they can it be delivered in a different way? Um, and this is necessitated both by the fact that we will not have the same uh, economic situation as we have now in the future, and we also will not have enough healthcare personnel. So we really do need to move uh, and change this culture. But it's a very strong tradition. Well, let's talk about what you're doing in Oslo because there there are some exciting things happening. You're involved in making Oslo the the first age-friendly city in Norway. So what kind of ideas have, have you implemented so far? In Oslo, it really started back in 2014, and we started with a lot of co-creation with older people, Um, talking to older people in conferences, workshops, interviews, different uh, platforms to try and assess what are the challenges and how's your daily life, can you get around, what's important to you? And it became very clear that transport 
almost everywhere we went and wherever we talked to, transport, transport, topic number one. So we um, joined forces with the transport company and we said, look, this this is obviously a need with our older population. Uh, you are, you're discontinuing routes, you're discontinuing stops. It's becoming harder for them to get in and out of the city centre and to join in on different activities. So we developed an age-friendly transport, which is more of a door-to-door service for the 67 plus. Uh, drivers are trained. It's smaller buses. You can bring a friend. Um, you can call and book. You can also do it via an app. But, you know, older people love the fact that they can just call and book um, this mode of transportation. They only pay the same as a concessionary ticket for pensioners. Uh, we started it as a pilot in a couple of districts, and now it's become citywide. It's actually wow. become a permanent service, and it's going to be citywide within the next few years. And how, how is it different? How is that different to some form of taxi service? Well, it's more environmentally friendly because the taxi service you use as one person. Here, you can have sixteen persons, so it's more social. They right. love it. They make new friends, and they go on the bus not necessarily because they have to go anywhere. They just want to make new friends, and they say jokingly themselves you know when interviewing them oh we love being tourists in our own city um and it's it's just become really a meeting place and these, a social these are pink thing. buses by the way yes and we chose the color specifically because we wanted something recognizable a talking point we wanted to stir up the conversation and the attention and and they love it and every so often the transport company has to use a green bus or another color because of uh, repairs or whatever and they call us furious what is this where are the pink buses we don't want any green buses we want the pink ones We've also tried to um, look at other initiatives in the city. So one that has been going for a few years now in Oslo is a car-free city centre. So the current uh, city government wants to remove cars and parking spaces, not all of them, obviously, but a lot of them from the city centre to make it more lively, more accessible, creating more life in the city centre. So we join forces. We uh, organise walkabouts. Uh, mapping different parts of the city. Um, We saw the need for more benches, better lighting. We reviewed the access to public toilets. Um, Were there enough meeting places? So we joined older people and bureaucrats from the planning department, from the city development, who were terrified, by the way, of meeting all these older people who would be very critical, they thought. But it ended up being really good walkabouts and workshops. And we did them during daytime and nighttime to look at all different, you know, the lighting at night and accessibility. Do you feel safe? We had people also in wheelchairs, blind people, so as to gain the most insight. We also um, worked with uh, the departments being responsible for the surrounding areas, so the lakes and the woods outside of Oslo. And even there, we put up a lot more benches, toilets um, and lighting. These were sort of low-hanging fruits, something visible that we could do in a relatively short term. Uh, Then, of course, the hard job, which is now slowly bearing fruit, is getting it into plans, regulations, getting the age-friendly agenda, the age-friendly perspective into regulations and plans for development either of new areas or redevelopment of old areas. So now more and more co-creation is an integral part of planning and implementing and evaluating initiatives as well. But you have to facilitate for it and you you have to manage it. 
and you have to make sure that you follow up, that it doesn't just become sort of a moot exercise that, yes, you invite a lot of people into a town hall meeting and they all, you know, say what they're concerned about and what the issues are. You really need to follow up and they do need to at least see some of it back in plans or in physical improvements in the city. And so the benches. I love benches, by the way. I'm, I've got to hang up on them because it's such a um, low-hanging fruit and it just makes a big difference. Mm. Um, and just seeing the benches, they just felt, oh, something's happening. They did listen to us and they actually put them where we said we needed them. And then they understand that the rest of the process and then bigger questions, they take time. But just these, make sure that something happens. because it's then you can visible to show that you're being thought about. Yeah, Exactly. Uh-huh. And so, th- so then in terms of things that will take a while, what does Oslo have planned? Well, the things that will take more time is housing, for example, you know, developing new housing models. Can we move away from nursing homes and create more sort of communes or collectives or groupings of, you know, people wanting to live together? Not necessarily only older people, but across generations. So housing, outdoor areas getting out and about, also activities like um, culture, being part of a volunteer, for example, physical exercise. All this needs to be more made more accessible. So so Oslo is one thing. Norway as a country, you've said that you, you face some of the same challenges as we do here in the UK with larger proportions of older people living in rural areas. Now, Norway is huge and those uh, villages can be very small and, and spread out. Are any of these ideas transportable into the rural areas of Norway? Are you hearing from uh, small villages or towns who, who want to take some of these ideas? Absolutely. Our transport is actually an issue both in cities and rural areas for slightly different reasons, but they're a challenge in both places. And just the whole idea of, okay, can we think in a different way? Can we actually pool the resources here in this small place and see what we can do to create more door-to-door services? Can we pool some resources of volunteers who can do it here if the public transport system cannot? So, yeah, for sure. The smaller places are also taking up the transport, but also the whole developing of areas. We have some lovely examples also of smaller areas doing things. So we have one place, um, it's called Glomfjord. Never mind, it's sort of in the middle of the country somewhere. Small town where the centre was basically just a roundabout, you know, as it often is. Um, Difficult to get to, not nice to come to. Okay, we need to do something. So they invited the inhabitants. What are your issues? Number one, winter, we don't get out. It's just all ice and snow here. We can't get anywhere. Number two, we want more meeting places, places to sit, places to meet. Okay, so they needed to do something anyway, and they did the smart move of inviting to co-creation. So they contact the local industries and they got the surplus heat and put it under the town centre so that it became ice and snow free. Wow. They put out, and this is environmentally friendly as well, didn't cost anyone anything because this surplus energy wasn't being used for anything else. So really clever. And then they put out different benches, created meeting places, uh, made all the shops um, and places around more accessible. And people were there all year round. People who hadn't even ventured into the city centre before. 
young mothers with prams, people with walkers or wheelchairs, young, old. It's a beautiful example and it was so old. And it, there's this lovely interview that the project manager says, oh, and we created these meeting places and they all came. Like he's very <laughs> surprised that it actually worked. Um, but it's very nice. It's sort of naive and, and so many people came and they still do and use it. So, yeah, there are great examples around the country. Well, if we headhunted you and uh, and said, Anna Barrett, will you, will you come and uh, head up uh, age, a, the age-friendly ministry here in the UK in our utopia that we have on this podcast, which is called the Jeffocracy, what, what is the first thing you would do from a national government perspective? What is the thing that national governments need to do to empower local communities to become more age-friendly? On day one, I would get all the different ministries together because... That's the hardest part, and it still is. Uh, it was both in Oslo and nationally. The cross-sectoral collaboration, that's really where you stop. Getting people together, co-creation, that would be on day two. But on day one, I would put the different departments together, and I would ask them each, okay, can you outline your top five priorities or strategies or action plans? And then I would put the age-friendly glasses on, and then we'd get cracking. Well, it sounds like we need a big box of Anna's age-friendly, uh, age-friendly glasses for people <laughs> to wear on this. Uh, it was, it's been really fantastic to talk to you, Anna Barrett, and uh, all the best. So we will uh, look forward to seeing what happens next in Oslo and Norway. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. So what did you think then? Well, I thought it was, I'm going to use this word, I'm not fully comfortable using it, but I'm going to use it. I thought it was uplifting. Mm. I've had this weird thing, which is that like, this is the best way that I can think to describe this. When I was ballpark age 25-ish, like obviously I intellectually understood that hopefully all things progressing as I hoped they would, there'd be like a day when I was 40 or 45. So I'm 25. I wait tables for a living. I hope to one day have a family, but I'm just 25 years old. This is my life now. And But I, I couldn't quite wrap my head around middle age. Now here I am in the middle age that I couldn't wrap my head around. And there's something about that like 20-year gap where now I can fully wrap my head around being 65. Like because I felt 20 years pass in an instant, it's very understandable to me that the next 20 years, if I'm lucky, will pass in an instant. And that feels sad to me. I, I I feel like sad about it a little bit. And I think about what my life will be like, and it makes me anxious. And so I, if I'm being 100% honest... It's not like some of these conversations made me less anxious, but it 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 made me feel good and inspired to know that great minds are thinking about it and that hopefully in another 20 years all this work that these people are doing will only make that phase of life more humane and less solitary. Doesn't it say something interesting, though, that, that the experience you're describing, which I think probably mirrors that of pretty much everybody listening, is is so common? Doesn't it say something interesting about the way we refuse 
to think about aging. I don't know if it's psychological uh, or if it's just something historically we haven't paid the correct amounts of uh, attention to. Now, you, you and I live in a city and I can really feel like it is rare to see an older person out and about in the wild. If you just think about who you see around the shops compared to who you see around the shops where my dad lives in North Wales. And yeah, I know from the population data that there are plenty of older people living here, but they they sort of feel pretty invisible. And I wonder what that tells us about who our cities are built for. Um, And for all the reasons that we talked about, that, that has to change and I loved, you know, as as ever, uh, I loved hearing about Norway and uh, not just because it was inspired by Manchester on this occasion, but I would happily sign up to go on that pink bus. I think that's my uh, my other takeout from this. You're listening to Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, as ever, we would love to hear what you have thought about the conversation we've had today. If you've got any ideas around age-friendly communities, if there's something that we've missed that you think is a, is a good point or a way of uh, a way of thinking about this, we'd love to hear from you or anything else we do on the podcast. If you've got an idea for who might in the future make a good last-minute replacement for Ed, if Sarah isn't available, uh, then you can email us through the website. It is cheerfulpodcast.com. Um, we had quite a lot of email. We did an episode, which I'm sure you won't have listened to. No, I don't listen to this. <laughs> uh, about how your class background can affect not only the careers that you have access to, but your ability to progress within those careers. Right, it was right, right, really, right. it was really very interesting. Am I allowed uh, to explain to people why I don't listen to this podcast? Yeah, because you're with me all the time. Yeah, even. basically, like I'm with you. Just imagine in the last year and a half, anyone who's listening to this, imagine how much time you've spent with your partner. And then imagine that in addition to that, like on that little bit of time that you have in your day to go on a walk, you put in your earbuds and listen to your spouse's voice more. So, honey, it's no reflection on the quality of this podcast, but I need some time away. I, I, I Continue. So you did this You did this episode. Yeah. So it, it was a really good episode. And, and uh, we had a lot of email afterwards. So we're just going to rattle through some of that. Um, this came from Charlotte Glossop, who says, Hello, I'm partway through the episode. I'm really enjoying it. Your guest has just explained the point around millions of Brits talking about their parents' uh, working class background as if to excuse their own middle yes. class. Now, I will say that uh, that was specifically about grandparents or generations back because I think a way that you do uh, 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 quantify class is by what your parents did for a living. That's the biggest single indicator. But Charlotte um, continues. She says, I just wanted to share my thoughts as I am exactly one of those people. Interesting. The reason being that growing up middle class as the child of someone who grew up working class means that they, and hence you, never take your privilege for granted. You are daily reminded of how lucky you are and the contrast between your own norms and those of your parent as they grew up. To my mind, it avoids the oblivious sense of entitlement characteristic of those who grew up unaware of their good fortune. It also intrinsically ties achievement to hard work and leaves you with a sense of having to work to continue you good fortune rather than assuming it'll happen on its own so i suppose i mentioned my grandparents to demonstrate a common understanding of a broader worldview um, than just of my own direct upbringing uh, the show always makes me think thank you I, I i get 
what you're saying, I think, um, I don't think uh, you were necessarily who we were talking about, but I think that there is an issue that people have where um, they kind of bury their own privilege and they've never known a life which hasn't had that privilege to it. They, they, they bury that under something their parents experienced before they were born, mm. which I think is a, is a different thing to the, uh, the, the experiences of class we were talking about on that, that episode. Mm-hmm. Shall I read the next email? Mm-hmm. It says, Dear Ed and Jeff, I was listening to episode 211 of your podcast, and I was particularly struck by the comments made by Isabel Farchi about how the level of arts education has been reduced in the UK public education system in contrast to private schools. Isabel also spoke of how the education system in public schools is much more focused on getting children through exams, and she talked about how her program helped children become more articulate and confident. I was struck, as Isabel spoke about this, at the oppressive nature that reducing arts education in schools and focusing the curriculum on exams has had on children's confidence. It made me wonder whether oppression and the stifling of the ability to express oneself is now baked into the UK public school system such that it doesn't encourage children to develop the skills to speak up, challenge, and advocate for themselves. I know you've done programs on education systems in the past, but just wondered whether you had looked at the impact that oppressive education systems have on societies in terms of adults' ability to instigate social change. Just a thought. Also, this is the first time I've written an email to you, so I googled reasons to be cheerful for your site and was struck by the number of other sites that came up. For example, did you know that there's a reasons to be cheerful beer cafe? Or I reasons- did not, no. Well, you're learning all the time, Jeff. Reasons to be cheerful website that is a quote unquote tonic for tumultuous times. I think that might be David Byrne from Talking Heads behind that one. Or a reasons to be cheerful pottery business. Wow. I think you should do an episode on them. Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast. Well, we're in the outro. How has the experience been for you? I found it very overwhelming. Does, does any part of you worry that our listeners are going to turn against you? Yeah, I mean... Because they're thing, not. They're very, very nice people. Th- that's, they that's are, but, but you just get worried. But I just think, you know, I, I probably won't be back. <laughs> so, like, so the point is, is if you hated me, neither one of us would blame you. But just don't come at me about it. They won't. People won't come at you again. And if you enjoyed Sarah, which which oh. I, I always do immensely, oh. then our succession podcast is called Fire Crotch and Normcore. It's out now. Presuming you listen to this on Monday, you'll be able to get it after the uh, the first episode of the new series. Don't you think I'll sell telly. myself better on that than I did on this, honey? Well, I think that's it's, uh, more in your wheelhouse. It's, you yes, it's more in my wheelhouse. And we should give you the opportunity to plug what is left of your tour. Oh, really? There's a chance. Okay, of- listen, fine. Twist my arm. I'll do it. I'll do it. I'm a stand-up comedian. I'm touring my stand-up hour. I mean, it didn't not receive rave reviews at the Edinburgh Fringe in 2019. It's this 2019 show. I wasn't able to tour it because of, guess what? The old Pando. Now I'm touring it. I'm done in I've done in London. Can't see me in London anymore. You can't see me in the north. You can't see me in Scotland. And but you, in the north, you can, you're in Tony Blair's old constituency, Selby. Yeah, I was going to say that what you can see me in Selby, you can see me in Cambridge, you can see me in Oxford, you can see me in Birmingham, you can see me in Nottingham, you can see me in Tiverton, you can see me in Crawley. And really, 
I'm really falling into certain stereotypes about Americans here by saying anything nice about myself. But let's agree that this, the most central part of my wheelhouse is being on stage for an hour. Ed, Ed has given you rave reviews in the past? <gasps> Ed has given me a rave review. And guess who came to my show at Soho Theatre right before the pando kicked in in 2020? Sadiq Khan. If it's good enough for Sadiq, maybe it's good enough for you. I mean, we don't know we if don't it know. was good enough it. for Sadiq. He because probably we, hated well, it. I don't know. I don't know if he We did. don't know what he we thought. We don't know what he thought. Just, you know, he, he had, had bigger fish to other fry. Other things to attend to. Right, I should thank our guests. Uh, thank you to Natalie Turner, Paul McGarry and Anna Barrett Rolfos. Emma Caution produced our podcast. Thank you, Emma, for getting the, this sounding vaguely coherent. Everything. Uh, if we sounded at all informed as ever, that was all because of Joel Pierce, who does all the research and finds the guests. He's backed up by Joe Kenyon at Goldfish. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. Ed Seed composed our music. James Deacon made our eye dance. And our artwork was designed by... Henry Cole. She hasn't been Ed Miliband. He has been desperately trying to plug a hole. And these have been... Reasons to be cheerful! Cheerful!